On Forgotten Gems, we look at some film festival favorites that initially received a lot of attention, but have since either fallen into obscurity or fallen out of favor. We're going to dig them up and relitigate. On this episode, we're looking at a film that won the Grand Jury Prize at the 1978 Cannes Film Festival. It's Marco Ferreri's Bye Bye Monkey. Let's check it out. Welcome to Forgotten Gems, a chance to rediscover festival favorites. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me, as always, is the Golden Boy, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? I don't know why it's Golden Boy and not Golden Child, uh, a movie I was obsessed with when I was a kid. Well, it's because I think I was going through boxer nicknames right, to yes. add to no, it. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, you're the Golden Boy, Liam. And honestly, wouldn't wouldn't we all like to feel like a Golden Boy at this part of our lives? Sure, that sounds great. Uh-huh. How are you doing, Leah? <laughs> I'm pretty good, Doug. Uh, you know, it, it, it is what it is. I, for listeners are well aware, I live in the the uh, the less north than you frozen wasteland that is the Chicago suburbs. Mm-hmm. But the freeze has broken, and it's gotten mildly pleasant here. I mean, to be fair, the negative temperatures we were enduring has completely destroyed my ability to judge weather. So now it's like around 50, and I think it's the tropics. But uh, still, it is certainly better than it has been, and I love that. And that puts me in a happy mood. Now, granted, you know, weather, whatever, whatever. But it's not that I want to talk about weather. It's that the effect on my psychology, Doug, is like – I don't feel like the, the, the world is going to end. I don't feel like there's no hope in the universe. You know, <laughs> I still feel personally like a failure, but the world is not as dark as it once was. Well, that's good. That's actually very nice to hear. It's actually the weather where I am in the frozen wastelands of Canada has also broken a little bit. It's actually unseasonably warm uh, on the day that we're recording this, Liam. And maybe that has me feeling a little bit hopeful as well. Though I have to say... Not really. <laughs> That's just not, it's just not happening yet, but maybe a few more nice days. It, maybe it's because I am not as affected by the long winter as some other people, including apparently yourself. Oh, yeah, the winter is. I mean, there's a s- short period of time where, you know, the idea, the sort of romanticized idea, especially before I had a kid, of like, I'm going to curl up in a blanket and make myself some coffee and get a snack and watch movies and that's my response to the snow there's still some appeal to that but that lasts for maybe like a week and the weather here was horrid for two straight months i've never experienced that much snow literally in my life i don't think since the blizzard of 94 which they still make t-shirts about in the philadelphia area have i ever experienced (laughs) snow like that and that was just like for this area doug was just a little worse than normal you know it wasn't like oh my god look what's happening it was like Oh, it's a little snowier than it usually is. Like, they still make T-shirts, you know, in Philly. So whatever. All I'm saying is I don't want to bore people with weather talk. All I'm saying is I'm just happy to be in a world with the sun again where, like, I, you know, I can just wear a jacket and not have to wear, like, you know, thermals or some shit. Well, Liam, one nice thing about the weather improving is that we get to go out and watch movies in the cinema or at least we would if we weren't still somehow <laughs> in the midst of a worldwide pandemic. Hey, some people are going to the movies anyway. They're just doing it. They don't care. They're letting it happen. Uh, but uh, I'm still not comfortable 
with that idea. When, Liam, do you think you're going to be able to go and sit in a movie theater again? That's a good question, Doug. I think there are a lot of things I'll be more comfortable with once I'm vaccinated. But sure. a movie theater is such a close space, and I just don't think – you would think that during this time, right, when we all weren't going, that movie theaters would have been pouring money into thinking about how they better filter the air in those rooms. But uh, instead, they were just laying off employees and upping their bonuses. So uh, (laughs) theaters are just as bad as they ever were. I think even after the vaccine, I'm going to need a lot of other people to have also gotten the vaccine before I'll feel comfortable going back. And even then, I might be one of those uh, jerk-offs who just keeps wearing a mask forever. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I know for certain activities, like, I'm not stoked on exercising in a mask. I've done it, but I don't love it. Uh, But outside of physically strenuous activity, I don't mind wearing a mask. I don't don't quite get the the mask backlash. It's kind of cool. Uh, They've been doing it in other parts of the world as a thing of courtesy for a while now. And Mm -hmm. so, like, if I'm going to be in a closed space for a longer period of time, I'm most likely going to have a fucking mask on for a while. Even though you're really just protecting other people from you in that circumstance. Yeah. I mean, yeah. But also, I don't know. We, uh, What we know about this vaccine is that you should get it. What we don't know is if it's going to be long-term as effective against varieties of this virus. So, like, I'm all for getting it. But the idea that, like, once everyone gets it, we've moved on and we don't have to worry anymore, it's, like, not real. Like, you find that out over time. It takes a while to know this thing. And so, you know, I'm just not the kind of person that's, like, things seem okay. I'm just going to go right back in. It's, like, I'm a little too, being a type 1 diabetic, I'm just a little too uh, open to death for me to risk it that hard. Listeners, if it seems like we're talking about weather and the pandemic rather than a movie at the moment, it might be because of the movie that we're going to be talking about today, (laughs) (laughs) which has screened Liam at a time when people had no worry about going to the cinema in 1978 at the Cannes Film Festival, which ran from the 16th of May 1978 until the 30th of May 1978. Liam, what were you doing in 1978? (laughs) (laughs) I was not being born yet. But you were you were just a twinkle, right? You were a twinkle in your mother's eye. Sure, that sounds like a thing. Liam, 1978 Cannes Film Festival, the feature film Jury was led by Alan J. Pacula, the director of All the President's Men, Clute, and The Parallax View. All I have to say is he was a, a, a terrific director, so of course he would only make terrific decisions, along with the rest of his jury, uh, on what would uh, become uh, the, the top movies coming out of Cannes. That makes sense. I mean, there's a logic to that. Uh, any other names jump out at you in this jury? Um, I should say yes, but honestly, no. There's Liv Ullman is on the list from uh, Norway and Harry Saltzman from the USA. There's, of course, a lot of critics and things like that, names that wouldn't necessarily jump out at us as opposed to uh, strictly filmmakers, which is great because having the mix of critics and film writers and directors means that you're going to get uh, home runs every single time. Every time. As I mentioned, on this episode, we're going to be talking about the Grand Jury Prize winning film Bye Bye Monkey, but it uh, was not the only film that won the Grand Jury Prize that year. Uh, the other film was the movie The Shout by Jerzy Skilomowski. Have you ever seen that film, uh, Liam? No, I've actually never heard of it. It's terrific. Uh, Tim Curry is in it, and John Hurt is in it, and uh, it's it's about this uh, basically this guy who has 
this magical ability to kill people with his shout, and he keeps talking about it throughout the movie. Very, very interesting concept. Very good movie. Kind of wish we watched that one since you had never heard of it before. <laughs> yep, yep. I mean, if I remember correctly, we, we were balancing which one we wanted to watch, but for some reason we both thought a movie called Bye Bye Monkey with Gerard Depardieu sounded like <laughs> a fun romp that would be a nice, lighthearted switch from some of what we do on the show, and it turns out we were wrong. Well, I mean, you know what? Maybe we're making too much of it. Uh, a lot of interesting films premiered at the 1978 Cannes Film Festival, including Alan Parker's Midnight Express, uh, Peter Haneke's Left-Handed Women. A lot of interesting movies, but a lot also that I have not seen or even heard of, which is one of the fun things about looking back over at films at screen at Cannes. Uh, though you always worry, of course, some of these maybe didn't get the much distribution. Maybe some didn't get a lot of attention. The interesting thing about Bye Bye Monkey, which I feel bad even calling it that, what a ridiculous English title this movie has. Its original title in uh, in Italian is Ciao Mascio, or Mascio, Mascio? Ciao Mascio, uh, which I guess roughly translates to Goodbye to Manliness, which is a lot more accurate to the kind of themes that it's uh, it's going for as opposed to something as ridiculous as Bye Bye Monkey but one of the notable things about this we mentioned it already Italian director uh, Marco Ferreri Gerard Depardieu in the lead a mixture of all ethnicities in the cast itself but this is an English language movie filmed in New York City yeah 1978 New York and in a part of New York where uh, my guess is a lot of people watching this are would be unfamiliar with this part of New York, both at the time, because not a lot of films were, you know, made in this area. But now, currently, a lot of what is seen in this movie just doesn't fucking exist anymore. Like, it's just not physically there. Like, if you tried to location, if you went on, like, a location tour for this film, it would be like, here's a thing that's, well, uh, where it used to be. You know what I mean? Like, you couldn't go see these places really anymore. I do want to mention that this film won the Grand Jury Prize at Cannes over Hal Ashby's Coming Home, uh, still a very beloved American film, and not saying that American films should be uh, given any preference over others, but looking back, that seems like a really odd decision, simply because I don't think we're exaggerating when we're saying that Bye Bye Monkey does not get a lot of attention now, and I think part of it is that the politics of it have aged particularly badly. Uh, at least my interpretation of it has. Well, I, I mean, I think you could make a uh, compelling argument that it's ambiguous. Uh, however, I didn't find it that ambiguous. If you know, you, you know what I mean. Like, I I, I get that um, it's it's not a message movie. There's not like a clear agenda. However, a lot of the tropes at work in this film that seems to be trying to upend tropes still seem pretty rooted in a in a traditional kind of masculinity that like is a little upsetting and 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 at times the film is self-critical of masculinity in a way that is somewhat refreshing but those seem like brief moments in a story that even outside of the politics or the gender specific politics uh the movie itself is just a little frustrating as a film even if you i i could imagine someone watching this who very much maybe vibes with the uh, attitudes and, and stereotypes that work in the film and still find it an annoying movie in many ways. It also is a movie that's set up very oddly in terms uh -huh. of its tone because it's a, it's a comedy drama at its core, but it leans pretty heavily on the comedy at times. But the director himself, uh, who's kind of renowned for his own cynicism, 
that cynicism comes out in the final 20 minutes in such a unpleasant and devastating way that it, it can't help but leave a bad taste in your mouth. There are moments that you could refer to even as whimsical in the film. And those seem so out of place with the cruelty that occurs in the final, uh, like third of the film, that it's it's strange. It's 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 like uh, it almost feels in some ways like a. Well, we're getting into it pretty deep, and we haven't even transitioned to think. But let's just as a preamble say, at times this felt like a mean spirited fairy tale to me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that we'll get across uh, after our first break, which I guess let's take it right now. When we come back, we're going to talk about the very strange and very unique and very unpleasant Bye Bye Monkey. Are you the parents? Yeah. Surname? Lafayette. Sex of child? Male. You dress a little boy like a little girl? Well, my uh, husband had his heart set on a little girl. You know, you really shouldn't do that. It's very hard on the child. You're going to cause it a lot of trouble doing that. First name? Cornelius. Date of birth? 25 December, 1977. Time of birth? Midnight. A religious affiliation? None. A man walking on the beach near New York City finds the corpse of King Kong. He also finds Kong's orphan son and takes it to a friend who lives in the city, and they decide to raise it. That is just a small piece of what is Bye Bye Monkey from the year 1978, directed by Marco Ferreri, uh, considered one of the greatest European cinematic provocateurs of his time. Uh, I think the film that he is best known for, well, certainly... Yeah, for myself is 1973's Le Grand Bouffe. Uh, he's also known for 1991's The House of Smiles and 1969's Dillinger is Dead. Has a very cynical view on uh, humanity, uh, which is on display in this film, certainly. It stars Gerard Depardieu as Gerard Lafayette. Again, it takes place in New York City. Gerard Depardieu speaks English in this film. Uh, James Coco is here. Uh, Marcello Mastriani uh, is here as well. And Geraldine Fitzgerald uh, as the Mrs. Toland, who has a interesting moment later in the film. Uh, some other semi-familiar faces, uh, as well as uh, including Stefania Cassini, who you might recognize from Dario Argento's Suspiria. So it has a very kind of international cast. I think the idea of it taking place in New York, and this might make you laugh, Liam, is that they thought that this movie would be a lot more marketable to English-speaking audiences by having it in New York with the actors speaking English. But in terms of the actual content, talk about the most uh, unpalatable type movie to ever try to market to the U.S., but uh, and it did not find an audience in the U.S., but it was critically acclaimed and beloved around the world. Uh, if you look up um, reviews of this film, you're going to find two kinds. One saying that it's an unbelievable masterpiece, and uh, the other saying that it's a complete piece of shit. Those are usually, Liam, the most interesting kind of movies. I think we've already uh, showed our hand a little bit. What did you think of Bye Bye Monkey? Whew. Um, uh, it's a it is a at <laughs> at best it is a confusing uh amalgam of ideas uh centered around gender um from a particular viewpoint that is not always clear uh i it is a ambiguous film i think you could say politically mm. but it's unclear if that ambiguity is intentional that that are director wants to problematize things or if it's ambiguous because it's just a messy 
not well executed film uh, that that it, it it plays with all these themes of uh, feminism and masculine performance and patriarchy and um, uh, you know being connected to people relationships all these things are at play but they're never explored too deeply um, and in fact some of the most interesting themes it felt like to me were side plots were afterthoughts were not central focuses of the film itself yeah um mm-hmm. and it explores all of that by just the strangest you know our, so uh lafayette which side note uh i i suspect that lafayette is an intentional name choice right yeah absolutely that, that this is a you know this is another young frenchman who's come to the u.s to seek his fortune he has two jobs one he works for uh uh mr flaxman played by james coco who runs mm-hmm. this uh roman basically wax <laughs> museum yeah he is the perfect example of what i would call what would eventually become your typical trump voter uh, a man who is utterly uh, a failure and so um, focuses all of his designs onto history. You're talking about the James identity. Coco character. Yes, here. exactly. Yes. And mm-hmm. so James Coco, he works for this man who has this imperial, patriarchal, Eurocentric idea of civilization itself. Right. Mm-hmm. He judges the world around him. He's obsessed with degenerates, even as he enjoys uh, fellatio from his students. Yeah, uh, right. He is uh, mo- mentally and emotionally abusive of people around him, and he is utterly insecure, so much so that he is reenacting Julius Caesar at night when no one is in the <laughs> museum. He is... Uh, a caricature of of manhood that I think is we are meant to mock and ridicule, but I think also represents certain strains of manhood that go into the political realm. Like I would say yes. that he is a representation of fascism to a certain extent. Whereas, yes. uh, whereas uh, 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 Marcello Mastriani is, you know, in a sense, an Italian anarchist. Uh, granted, I don't know that he turns out too well either, so I don't know that there's a message there. Uh, and, and I want to specifically mention also Abigail Clayton, who you didn't get a chance to mention, uh, a, a woman who it w- was known before this for uh, pornography, did some horror movies after this that people might recognize her from. Um, and the strangest relationship really is between her and Depardieu uh, because it's like, at first, she is participating in this feminist theater group uh, attempting to rape him. Uh, and, and, and activity, by the way, they find unsatisfying because it isn't violent enough. Yes. So they feel like they don't really understand rape because they aren't violating him in a violent way, even though they have knocked him unconscious. And then slowly falls for him, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> um, even as he you know, is is finds this young chimpanzee and is trying to raise his chimpanzee as, as I, his like, at this child. point Liam everything you're saying about this is absolutely correct but it sounds insane as you're describing and that's the issue right is that there is a whimsy to this film I guess this is what is uh, you know I could complain about individual aspects of this film so it drives me crazy but the overall thing here is this is a whimsical film this is a fucking fairy tale of a film this is a film where there's a giant stuffed monkey on a beach with a with a chimp in its hand and we just go with it and where this these people get papers for the pet chimp like it's their child <laughs> and yet 
It has no sense of fun or joy or wonder. It is a brutally cynical movie um, that ends in death and fire. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. like, uh, you know, I, I get it. It's playing with themes, you know, like younger audiences might watch this film and not realize, like, the fear of super rats in New York. That's a real thing. That's a contemporary piece of life. Now, granted, they didn't quite look like the guys from the crazies like they do in this movie, <laughs> but, but they were doing insane things to deal with rats in New York because they had what they were calling super rats. That's a real thing that happened. Um, and there's other sort of historical things going on here. But on the other hand, it's not set in the real world. So if it's not set in the real world, why does everyone have to meet such awful ends based out of selfishness and greed? It's like not clear to me where this movie is going and why it goes there. I mean, it does feel like it's it's a very confused movie for most of the running time. It feels like it knows... It kind of has this general sense. Gerard Depardieu's character, Lafayette, he is going to have this child monkey that he is going to decide to raise basically as his son. Um, and that means, you know, and I do interpret this movie as saying that that is not a good thing in the long run, that he is not going to be capable of caring for this child appropriately. Uh, I'm glad that you brought up Abigail Clayton. I think that uh, she's a very important part of the plot. We find out near the end of the movie that she is pregnant uh, and Lafayette uh, is the father and his response to it is uh, maybe not horror, but certainly <laughs> he responds like he responds to a lot of things. He blows a whistle, but I mean, he, he basically runs away from it and she's left in despair. So he obviously doesn't want fatherhood in a traditional sense, but he does want this monkey, which, I mean, we'll talk about it in just a few moments, what happens with the monkey. Um, but do you interpret this movie as saying, is it saying something about a traditional family system that men are becoming too feminized to the point where they want to raise children by themselves? Is that what we're supposed to take out of it? I don't. I didn't get the feeling that that was too clear. It, it felt to me like the appeal of the monkey with her is that they then have a fake family. They have a pretend right. family. Mm. And the reality of the lifelong commitment of being an actual father is too much for him. But I also think about how it seems as if from the from the commentary on the film that the director intended this to upset obvious gender roles. So is he in some way commenting on women being unwilling at the time, in his view, to commit to a traditional family? So it's, so in, in a way, she even though she uh, pursues him initially for his body, she eventually falls for him. Like, in, in a sense, Doug, the arc of Abigail Clayton's character is the arc of a European man in a European sex comedy. I value this person purely for fucking. Over time, I become attached to them, and now I want them to fall in love with me and become my traditional life partner. And then the woman is like, well, that's actually not what I wanted. That is the plot of so many movies from the 70s. It's amazing. Only it's back to a male-female relationship on this thing. And so she, even though she did not value him in this way, wouldn't move in with him, wouldn't do all this stuff with him, uh, she now is pregnant and is like, let's do this together and he just can't you know and and this is reflected in other parts of the movie right like um 
he's continually protecting Luigi, protecting in this the ridiculous sense from women because women are not trustworthy. You know, well, that's sort of like I guess supposed to be playing with the idea that men are not trustworthy and you have to protect women from men or some bullshit. But the the thing is that the film is so inconsistent in any of its messaging that when that moment happened, I was like, I guess he's just not ready to be a dad. It's like the larger. The, the, even though this whole thing has a satirical feel in its whimsy, it's not clear what exactly the message of the satire yeah, is supposed to exactly. be. Exactly. And the thing is, at first I thought I had a handle on it, right? Obviously, it's playing the feminist theater troupe for less. Yes, yes. Right? They're supposed to be silly, not necessarily because they're feminists, though I do think that that's an aspect of that what it's playing with, but the fact that they're trying to be shocking and they're, they're having trouble, right? They're having trouble with it. But then the fact that they decide to knock Lafayette over the head with a bottle until he's unconscious and then rape him. Um, that's not played as like this serious moment. That's played for humor as well. Um, and, and his response afterwards is anger and frustration. And then he tries to sexually assault one of them at the same time. And like, this is not played as some sort of long-term traumatic thing. I think at one point that Lafayette even says that he doesn't believe in rape, which is, just, I mean, I don't know if we're supposed to take that as supposed to be a serious statement or not. It's a movie that's, it, I worry that it's not that its message is as confused as we are confused by its message. But, but, but yeah, I know what you're saying. I, I, I don't know. It's, it's unclear if we just can't hear the, the tune. If we don't get the references, you know what I mean. Like I, I've, I've, I've made the comment. But before. then again, they did said they've said it in New York specifically, so this is supposed to right. speak to to a U.S. But is, but is audience. A, but is this a timing thing? You know what I mean. Like, is this an issue of the Cosby sweater? Right. Like we're getting very close, Doug. I mean, it's hard in our culture because we're obsessed with nostalgia. But sure. if things move forward the way they should, we're getting very close to the fact that most people in culture won't know what a Cosby sweater is. It won't have. Right. Any meaning for them. In fact, you could wear the same sweater and people will start calling it the Biggie sweater because Notorious B.I.G. is more important to culture right now than Cosby. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Uh, is that happening here? Is is there notes being played that we don't recognize and therefore we're not connected to the film? Or is it that the film is playing those notes so poorly that even in 1978 we would have been like, I don't know what the fuck this is supposed to be, guys. I don't know why we're doing this. It kind of feels like someone went and saw the 70s King Kong movie, and then had like a bunch of bad food afterwards and had this fever dream which just took elements of it and then just decided that's the movie, right? I mean, there is this, there's a very surreal tone to everything that's going on, but it mixes with things that are a lot more realistic. We should, just to give clarity, because we didn't actually say this during the show, the a lot of where this film takes place is right by the World Trade Center. So when they find the giant animatronic uh, monkey, you can't help but think about King Kong. The right. At the time, you wouldn't have been able yes, to think. Yes, yes. Yeah, now, it. you probably, it's not as relevant, but at the time... Now you're probably thinking about something else by seeing those twin towers in the background. Yeah, exactly. Or just seeing that beach. If you've been to New York, you're looking at this beach going, where the fuck is this beach? What's happening right now? So one other thing about Gerard Depardieu's character in this is that he's a very irritating person horrible be not only is he irritating simply because of how he acts and how i mean he i will say that when it comes to his relationship with the monkey he does seem to be somewhat caring but he also like knocks it around a bit in a way that is very unpleasant to look at the monkey itself by the way is very cute and he leaves uh, it alone a lot he he leaves it alone the monkey a lot 
Yes, yes. And that does not end up uh, well, as we'll find out in a moment. But the other thing about this character, and it's the thing I'm going to take away from this movie if I ever think about it, is that he is constantly blowing a whistle, like a ref's whistle. He has it in his mouth, and when he gets... I don't know if it's confused or if he doesn't... Because one of the other things about this character is that he's a man of few words, but he just loves to blow this fucking whistle, and he does it all throughout the movie. And Liam, why does he keep blowing this whistle? But this was the first suggestion to me, Doug, that there might be some sort of gender thing going on here. Sure. He's represented, even though he has all the brashness and shitty opinions that you associate with head men, he also kind of operates as a shrinking violet. That he is like unwilling to put himself out there. He sort of mumbles his shitty opinions. He's he's only when invited to does he put them out there. Even right. though when he does put them out there, he just sounds like a shitty man. It's like yeah. this weird combo thing. Uh, however, why then if he if this was a female character, why would she be blowing a whistle? I have no fucking idea. It's it's clearly a way for him to hide. It's a way for him to not share what he's thinking. It's a way for him to avoid uncomfortable situations. But it doesn't work. It's annoying. It it doesn't build any sympathy for him at all. And I wish it wasn't in the film. <laughs> I mean, that's... <laughs> we, we know, yeah. I mean, frankly... I mean, this is it, already a movie I don't enjoy. And this one aspect is like, the movie would be 20% less bad without the whistle. <laughs> like, for real. I will say that one of the characters, like the James Coco character, I feel like I got a handle on what that is supposed to yes, be. Yes. Lafayette, I get a handle on some of what that's supposed to be. I do think that the Luigi character, played by Marcello Mustriani, is a very interesting one simply because I'm not at all understanding what it's trying to say. As you said, he calls himself an anarchist at one point. He talks about being afraid of communism, about going back to Italy. Um, but in terms of the political side of thing, I feel like I'm lost in the woods. He is a character that is constantly crying, seems very attached to this monkey, um, but also incredibly horny to the point where he just talks about how he wants to have sex but can't, while it seems like it's very easy for Lafayette. He's an older gentleman who is... It feels like he's not part of anything, right? He's not being invited to the party. He's always outside of it. And he kind of has created this also insular wor world for himself where he thinks he's he's throwing grand parties, but we never see him actually do it. He has this little garden that he tends to, but he just seems incredibly depressed. What is your interpretation of what this character is supposed to be? I have no idea. I mean, yeah. my, my initial thought, right, was because of his pining and his whatever that it was a stereotype of like an older woman that like she was ignored by the society that that unlike older men who could find younger women uh to to seduce that she was not being taken care of and that the the younger people she did interact with would only want money you know what i mean like there's that, that again this feels like a character from an italian movie that i'm describing <laughs> but but the portrayal isn't consistent enough for that to make sense to me does that make sense? Like, yeah. When he first shows up and starts doing this, I'm like, oh, okay, maybe this is supposed to be like this, uh, this kind of sad older woman stereotype, but it's being played by a man. And then over time, I'm like, or not. I don't know what the fuck is going on. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> but that's how I felt about a lot of the film, Doug. Is that when I would start to understand, like, maybe this is going on, it would be sort of torn apart. You know what I mean? And so, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. Uh, like a lot of things I don't know what to make of in this movie that again, and, and I want to be clear with 
f- with people listening, and, and, and if you've listened to this show regularly, you should know this. The movie doesn't have to be clear to be compelling. And I guess that's part of what's going on here is it's unclear, and I didn't find it compelling, and that's where my frustration is kind of coming from. One of the things that the movie does at the very end, and we'll spoil a little bit of it now. In fact, we'll, we'll probably go into some pretty heavy spoilers, um, which is that the Luigi character commits suicide. He hangs himself in his garden. Um, I don't know what it was that pushed him over the edge. It seemed like it happens. It happens basically. He helps the monkey get its papers and become a legitimate citizen, and then he leaves everything he owns to Lafayette. Uh, well, actually, he leaves it to the son, the Lafayette's kid, the monkey. And then he hangs himself in his garden. I guess he feels like a man it's, so dis... Yes, please. It was when Lafayette slept with the older woman. That so was okay. the end. Okay, so th- th- this is a little bit hard to explain as well. There are these kind of friends of Lafayette, these kind of odd characters, who, who accompany him throughout the movie in certain circumstances, including when he shows them the gigantic King Kong uh, body on the beach. Uh, and they're kind of odd characters, but one of them is an older woman played by Geraldine Fitzgerald. And there's a part in the movie where they're having like a party and she sings a, a kind of a sad Irish song and then starts to break down crying. And the suggestion is, is that she thinks she's old and unattractive and that she doesn't feel wanted anymore. And Lafayette feels very sorry for her. She goes into a bedroom. He comes in, asks her to rejoin the party. She seems resistant. And so... They have sex while the rest of the people come in and watch them. And as you suggested, Luigi cries during it. So what are we supposed to take away from that? That he wished he would be the one? Afterwards, he does mention that he, again, that he really wants to have sex. But is it? it I don't think there's a suggestion that he wants her specifically. It's just that it kind of reinforces his impotence, something like that? Oh, I think it is. I think it's that he he's thinking of her as the only person his age. You know what I mean? And so seeing that, it's like, not only can I not get any of these younger women to love me who just take my money, but I can't even connect with this woman who is my age. And I think it's just the final straw and he just gives up on life. Why? Is it it like like the world is for the young? Something like that, maybe? I don't fucking Let's let's make it very clear. Gerard de Perdue, 28 in this movie. Geraldine Fitzgerald was 64. I mean, that you do not see those kind of sex scenes in movies very often with a woman that much older. I mean, you don't see those sex scenes really in in anything outside of very specific pornography um, that uh, with those kind of age differences. Yeah, I don't... But what are we supposed to... Why is that the thing that breaks... Uh, Luigi? Why is that the end for Luigi? I don't know. His life doesn't seem that great the whole movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but he that that moment seems to specifically be the end for him. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about the performances in this because it's one of the few things that are solid enough that you can talk about it concretely. Uh, Gerard Depardieu is an actor actually I have a lot of time for. I know he's kind of a... I don't know if you would consider him a joke in the U.S., but, uh, you know, out at... Green Card was sort of his breakthrough movie over here, but then he made a bunch of bizarre movies. I think mostly he became kind of a joke because of the idea that he was this sex symbol in in France, but he had this very unique look. I think watching this movie, you can see why he was a sex symbol because he does have a certain charisma, but I do also find his performance incredibly 
unpleasant all the way throughout. Yeah, yeah. And I think he brings a little bit of himself because one of the things that I get from Gerard Depardieu as a person when I see interviews is that he's kind of unpleasant as a person. Yeah, I mean, I found him very frustrating the entire film. I, yeah. I would, that's the nicest way I could put it. <laughs> Were there any other performances that stuck out at you in any positive way? Well, I think James Coco is great. I mean, I think yeah. that character is obviously gross, but that's he's perfect at it. But he seems like he comes out of a completely different movie because, yeah. you, again, like I said, you can get a handle on him. You know what he's all about. Uh, it, I do want to talk, actually, I, just moving away from the performances because we're talking about James Coco. What is your interpretation of the part of the movie where a gentleman approaches James Coco about his museum and asks him to over time change the faces of these characters to represent political figures, JFK, Richard Nixon, uh, maybe not all political. I think at the end, one of them looks almost exactly like Elizabeth Taylor as well. But like he wants them to change these faces and to be recognizable. James Coco seems he's absolutely angered and, and horrified by this very notion. But then the guy threatens him, saying that he has all these safety violations, and we see that he's done it. Is it meant to <laughs> represent in some way... Commerce over art or inserting politics where it doesn't belong. What was your takeaway from this? Simply that it was like a that this his whole vibe is that he's so imperious and he judges all around him and he would never compromise or whatever. Yes. And of course he will compromise, like anyone compromises, because he is not important. His little kingdom he rules over doesn't matter. It's ridiculous as a concept, even. Um, and so he'll do whatever he has to do. I mean, it's even weirder for us as a modern audience because there's no way that building that they are setting this thing in even <laughs> exists anymore, like in that part of the city. So he's he's just a leftover who hasn't quite realized that the time is up for him is sort of how I thought about it. I mean, maybe that is one of the wider themes of this movie the you know people being left behind by the passage of time right you see it in oh yeah in, yeah uh, and and but that isn't the core of the movie the core is still gerard depardieu and this monkey so let's talk about what happens with the monkey it's such a bummer man and i i knew it was going to happen so i just was waiting for it which made it even more unpleasant at one point gerard depardieu he goes out um with uh, abigail clayton when he comes home, he calls for the monkey. It doesn't. It doesn't come to. It always. You know, all throughout the movie, anytime he's there, basically the monkey is running towards him, climbing up him, and nestling in his arm. He's not there, and he looks to the back of his apartment, and the monkey has been eaten by rats. And this specifically sent, Chekhov's rats. Yes, and it's it, it is a horrible thing. It is kind of ridiculous looking, but it is horrible. He runs off. He goes to the Wax Museum where he confronts James Coco, who is, as you said, he's basically performing as Caesar within these dummies. Um, he, he, Mark Anthony. Mark Anthony, that's right, um, along with Caesar. Um, and he's within these dummies that have been altered. You can see the, the Richard Nixon one in the background. It seems that he wishes for death at this point, which, uh, Lafayette sort of, he starts to choke him for a second, but when he doesn't able to finish the job, um, James Coco throws himself into the faulty electronics, committing suicide and setting the whole place ablaze. Gerard Depardieu, it, it's hard to tell if he actually tries to escape. He certainly doesn't seem to try very hard. He burns up 
with the building. And the final thing we see is Abigail Clayton's character, Angelica, uh, who has now given birth, her naked with her child on the beach while the child runs around in the surf. What are we supposed to take away from that, Liam? I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, okay, okay. The idea that James Coco is this fragile, hollow man, uh, part of a death cult, you know, who like clearly has no value to the world and is just waiting for an excuse to die. All of that resonates. Sure. It's, it's weird for the movie to culminate with that because it feels like a sub... His Everything about him feels like a subplot until it becomes the climax of the film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And... and uh, I get also the idea here that like there seems to be some critique or, or of Depardieu like he's so obsessed with this monkey and for Coco it's like how could you be sad about this monkey he's just a monkey you know what yeah, I mean and exactly so there's some question about like maybe this is a defense of frivolity or a defense of whatever but the there also seems to be this idea that like you know, uh, Abigail Clayton is better off. You know, Angelica is better off without all of these men anyway. Absolutely. So, at the end, so let me make it very clear. That part at the end where she's nude on the beach with the child, it's a very serene visage. And it's meant to, I mean, I think you were supposed to take away that she is a, more, a much more uh, happy person away from all of it, as you were just suggesting. So what is that about? I don't know. And then even more so when every every sort of commentary in this film that's positive is like this really reverses gender roles it's really a reversal of gender roles and i'm like so women would burn themselves up in the wax museum i don't understand what's going on in this fucking movie (laughs) um and again it's a weird combination of like i'm not sure i understand and i'm not sure that i want to understand does that make sense yeah i want to believe that if i could that I could resonate with all of the politics and cultural references going on in the film that maybe it would have more meaning for me. But I don't know that the meaning would make it a better movie, but at least I'd be less confused. But what I left with was I wasn't very entertained. I didn't really like what was happening. It was very unpleasant. And when something is this unpleasant, it helps if you know why, like what the goal is, like what is being communicated, what's the narrative. And it ended and I was unclear about what the film was trying to communicate, if it was trying to communicate anything at all. And let us, let's make a couple of things clear as well, which is that we were thinking about it, you know? Yeah. We're trying to puzzle it out. We're, it's oh, not yeah. like we're, we are not passive viewers when it comes to this thing because we, we know we have to talk about it. So the fact that we don't understand it doesn't mean that there's nothing to understand here. It's that from the tools that we have available to us, this, a, a lot of this is incomprehensible. Maybe that's intentional or maybe we're just not getting it. And I want to put it out there to listeners. Hey, if, you, if you've seen this movie, Bye Bye Monkey, if you have thoughts about it that you want to communicate to us, please go through uh, Cinema Smorgasbord website at cinemasmorgasbord.com or contact us via social media. We'll talk about it in just a moment. And, and let us know. Let us know what we might be missing. I did, after watching this movie, I went through a lot of reviews for it. They told me nothing. They told me absolutely nothing about the political climate that it might be referring to. All it either said was, this is a masterpiece or this is total shit, and said nothing else. It's so weird. Yeah, it's it's so weird. <laughs> that's that's all we're, we're going to leave you with on this conversation uh, about this film. Uh, so, Liam, I guess I'll ask, uh, is this film, Bye Bye Monkey, from the year 1978, uh, the Grand Jury Prize winner at Cannes, a forgotten gem? No. <laughs> I mean, look, I guess I, I, 100% I will say, yo, if you are a Depardieu stan, 
of which mm-hmm. there are such people, as sure. confusing as that might be. I think you should see this. I think this is an interesting part of his career. I've seen more Depardieu movies than I would like to admit, uh, but I don't really particularly like him. It's just he was in a bunch of stuff, you know, when I was younger that I saw. Uh, um, so if you care about him, I guess it's worth it. I don't know enough about this director to know if it's worth seeing it just if you like his other movies. I suspect it's not, but I could be wrong. Uh, for me and for, I think, our general audience who may not have strong feelings about either this director or Depardieu, uh, I think this is a, a very skippable movie. I don't care how many awards it won. It just doesn't resonate for me on any level, and it's not quite weird enough to be like a fun weird watch right like, that's it uh, that, that's a that's a good thing to mention where what we're saying makes it sound really kind of strange and weird but it just skirts that edge it's just like it just needed to go 10 percent more surreal and then maybe you'd be like oh i'll just accept that i don't know what this is all about but maybe i'll come back to it and but i will never come back to this movie it's just such an unpleasant thing to watch i'm just really i i mean i it's weird to say this but i'm honestly surprised by how um, unpleasantly weird this movie is. Because <laughs> it, it, it feels like, with all the elements on the table just described, this should be a fucking fun thing. And it's just not. It's just not enjoyable for me. Well, that's our final thoughts on Bye Bye Monkey from 1978. Liam, what will we be watching on the next episode of Forgotten Gems? We're going to be watching 1998's Brazilian film Central Station that won the Golden Bear at the Berlin uh, uh, Film Fest. Um, I don't know anything about this film. Like, it, it, it's literally one of our choices where it won an award, it, it got some attention, but I've never heard anyone talk about it ever. Have you, Doug? Are you at all familiar with this film? I have a vague memory of that time period simply because I was really getting into movies in the late 90s to the point where like foreign films would be something I'd be keeping an eye on. It, it, it wasn't nominated for Best Foreign Language Film at the Oscars. Uh, so it, it was a film that had a lot of heat around that time period. I believe it was on a number of like top 10 lists at the end of the year. That said, it hasn't made a lasting impression enough that I heard anyone mention it in a number of years. So I'm very, very curious about, uh, about checking out Central Station. Well, if you're curious, you'll have to tune back in and hear our final word, which will be the determinative uh, <laughs> legacy of this film for all time. <laughs> We're bringing it back. We're relitigating, Liam, just like we did with Bye Bye Monkey. Liam, if people want to check out uh, some of our other work, maybe things that are not as confused as this particular episode, uh, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, they can head over to cinemasmorgasbord.com for our uh, archive of episodes and the variety of shows that we cover, whether that's uh, our Carol Kane show, Jackie Chan, uh, our uh, show exploring genre film festivals from around the world, and our latest show, uh, diving into the works of Alejandro Jodorowsky. Um they can also head over to cinepunks.com, that's C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X, uh, to not only find the latest episodes of this podcast, but a whole family of podcasts. Um, and, you know, while they're there, maybe check out the Patreon, maybe check out the merch, maybe check out some of the of the writing over there. Just a, just a family of things over there at cinepunks.com. And, of course, uh, both of these outlets are on social media. You can follow Cinepunks Facebook. Twitter, Instagram, it's just C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X. And of course, Cinema Smorgasbord, the show, is on Twitter, Cinema Smorg, S-M-O-R-G, at, on Twitter. 
<laughs> you can also follow both Liam and myself on Twitter. He is there at Liam Rules, which is R-U-L-Z. And you can follow me at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. And because we haven't uh, uh, kind of promoted it for a while, uh, Liam is also involved with Rough Cut Shirts, a, uh, a shirt oh, yeah. distribution company. What's, uh, what's going on with Rough Cut? Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, head on over to roughcutfanclub.com. Uh, check out our latest drops as well as some of our older stuff. We should be updating. You know, everything we do is pre-order, but we, we try to get extras so we can put them up on the shop. So we're adding some extras up uh, in the next couple weeks. Very exciting stuff. Very, very nice looking shirts and ones that I, uh, for if you're the kind of person who would listen to a podcast about a movie like this, then you'll probably be interested in the kind of shirts that they put out. Uh, Liam, I think... For now, it's time for us to stop talking about bizarre movies. We need to take a break. We need to catch our breath after Bye Bye Monkey. We're going to be back very soon with 1998's Central Station. Good night, everybody. Bye, night.